0: We're headed to Revelation chapter 10 as we pick up there. But while you're turning, let me just mention or ask you a few silly questions here this morning. Name an occasion where Count Dracula is always appropriately dressed in that dark tux or whatever it is. Halloween? A funeral? A wedding? You guys got all the answers already. A birthday. Here's what they said: a wedding, a costume ball, a formal supper, and then Halloween was number one. Name a big animal in a China. Sh- name a big animal a China shop owner would not want to let loose there. A bull is there. Elephant. I don't remember if it's there. A, gi- a giraffe, a horse, rhino. Here's what they said: a giraffe, a lion, a bear, an elephant. The number one was a bull. Name something in an office that makes lots of noise. People, telephone, photocopiers, AC, okay. Folding machine, oh, ours is loud, yeah, absolutely. Here's what I said, other people, the shredder, the printer, the fax machine, the copier, and number one was the phone. What is the maximum number of times it's okay for a partner to call their partner at work during the day? None? <laughs> Did you hear that? None. None. <laughs> what numbers? Three. Three? One? Okay. Here's what they said. Five. Zero. Four. One. Three. And two is the number one answer. Okay. You're okay? <laughs> we work in the same office. <laughs> I should have rephrased this. Number of times you can come in my office. Okay, where do I work? What is the number of divine judgments discussed in the Book of Revelation, and when do they occur? Not not when in the book, but when in the chronology of future events? What's the number of judgments? Twenty-one. Where? How do you get twenty-one? Modern math, or there's three different. Okay. Three sets of, okay, okay, and how many in each one of those sets? Seven, okay, that's where you got, you're, good math, Lloyd, very good. Okay, so the three sets of major judgments, what are they? <laughs> <laughs> the s- seal? Mike, <laughs> I gave you the answers to help you out, yes, okay. What do you have, what do you say, Doug? No. The seal, the bowls. What's the other one that's other name for bowls? The vials. Vials. V-I-A-L-S. Okay. And the last one? Trumpets. Okay. So they are the different sets of judgments. Seven in each one of these three sets. The first half is the seal judgments. What about the violin jo- and, bo- and trumpet? Second half. They're in the second half. So we're trying to just give a little bit of a distinction in that. Um, what, what do they... What is the nature of the judgments? Are they all miraculous? That's something that is abnormal? Are they natural? Are they man made? Okay, they're all they all initiated from, from heaven. Okay. But do they do they are they super miraculous things or are they use of nature or use of man? Nature and man, okay? And, okay, actually, I, I gave you the, three, the answers, okay? There are some that God uses nature, such as what? Earthquake, the, the storms, the, the fires, things of that sort. Any man made judgments? The wars. The worst, man-made, man-made. Again, initiated by God, superintended by God. Any, any uh, supernatural, clearly they're dealing with the supernatural or spiritual element. The demons that are given out, okay, that they're happening. So uh, as they go along, these, these judgments get worse and worse. And the last, the last uh, trumpet judgments are called woes, uh, numbers 5, 6, and 7, and so they get even worse, but God is using a variety of different things, okay? Uh, natural events that are heightened or suspended, as we said, demonic forces are engaged, and even humans are engaged in some of this with their persecution, humans attacking humans, persecuting the believers is one of the seal judgments. Then you have the wars that are involved in the number six judgment. The result is going to be great death and devastation. Remember, we're in a seven-year period, right before the seven years, sometime before, we think it's very close to, what had happened with some of the people in the world's population before the tribulation. This involves you. The rapture. And so a number of people are taken away. We don't know what's happening and when that's going to happen. That's an imminent event. We don't know um, as far as how that impacts society. However, let's just postulate for a second. If all of a sudden a lot of people are disappearing miraculously in a rapture, what are the possibilities for devastation? Airplane crashes, highway crashes... If, if, if you're on an operating table, not you, but if somebody's on an operating table and all of a sudden the staff disappears, could that be disaster for that person? Okay, so you have a lot of those different things that are potential that we don't know about. And so there could be, as a result of the rapture, there could be accidents, there could be deaths that would happen then. Somewhere is going to begin the tribulation. Immediately, days, weeks, months, we don't know. But the tribulation starts in the first three and a half year a period in the seal judgments one quarter of the people die who are alive who go into it. That's a lot of people that would die and then in the second three and a half years a third die Okay, another third of those who survive. So death is going to be just common in a seven year period over 50% of the world's population will be gone of those who live, plus all the Christians taken away beforehand. So this uh, this just a devastating time. I would think there's not going to be an individual or family that's not affected by that. You would think everybody. And so you would think that there's going to be a lot of grieving, which is really horrific for people, and especially people without any hope. And so that's going to be a devastating time. And then on top of that, there's going to be their own personal... Um, uh, 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 what word do I want to use crises they 're trying to just simply survive i mean what what types of things make it so bad that survival is a challenge famine famine remember it 's going to cost a day 's wage just to get one sandwich okay for a family so it 's a devastating time. And so we've been talking about it. We're at chapter, um, I said 10, and actually I want to be at 11, and so you're close enough. We're at chapter 11, and we were in the discussion about what happens in chapter 11. Chapter 11, if you're going through and marking your Bible, it is a, a parentheses between the chronology. He does this in uh, throughout. He does it in the Old Testament. And I, my illustration, I always take you back to is Genesis 1, Gives you the summary of creation. Then chapter two gives you the details, specific in more detail. That's very ancient Near Eastern type of writing. That's what happens in the book of Revelation. He's giving you some chronology, but he's all of a sudden interjecting and saying, Hey, just to answer some questions, here's how people got saved in the first half 144,000. And so he's given us information about the, um, about the different judgments of the trumpet judgments. And right after he says, It's gotten so bad and we're right towards the very end and we're ready to hit the seventh trumpet and the demons are loosed and just in case you're wondering is has god lost control in case you're wondering how god how how it got so bad he's going to give us chapter 11 12 and 13 those are giving there's kind of like he's stepping back and giving details uh, that start with the middle of the tribulation. Even though he's given chronology up through chapter 9 to the end, he now backs up and gives us, hey, just to explain a few things. And so in the explanation, he's talking in verses 1 and 2 about God having to John, uh, Apostle John, measured the temple, which is an indication that God is still owner of the temple. God's going to take charge. God's going to take it back eventually. And the people that God uses to try to convince people for salvation is the 144,000, but also he introduces the two prophets um, who we've been in the middle of a discussion with. And they're going to be the people that God is going to use to preserve a remnant and the, you know, the temple in God's mind from being totally vacated and given to the, to, the, uh, to the supernatural demons. And so he says in verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy for 1260 days, which is how many months? 42 months, years? Okay, which is the second half of the trip. They're clothed in... And by the way, let me just jump... From verse three to verse thirteen, the same hour there was a great earthquake, tenth part of the city fell, uh, fell, and they were slain. And he says, in verse fourteen, the second woe was passed, and behold, the third woe comes. That puts us into the chronology of when the two prophets show up. They're in the second half of the tribulation, because according to verse thirteen, the same hour. That is at the very end of the tribulation period where the second woe has passed. Now we're getting to the third one. And so we know they're in the second half of the tribulation. And he says there are two olive trees. We supposed in the two candlesticks, this is referenced to Zechariah 4, where he gave a vision to Zechariah of two olive trees with pipes that were providing olive oil that was used to keep the candelabra of the Jews burning constantly in the vision and he had said in chapter in Zechariah 4, 4 when he gave that vision I want you to understand it is not by man's power but by my, my might my spirit and so I think if that's the reference what he's doing in verse 4 is saying these guys are supernaturally empowered it's of God it's not of them And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth, devours the enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up the heavens that it might not rain in the days of this prophecy. Have power over waters to turn them to blood. to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. Interesting phrase that they can bring this at God's going to support them as offer whenever they choose. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war with them and shall overcome them and kill them. I made the observation last time that this is the first of 30 different, 30 Plus, references to the beast who we'll find out in the next couple chapters is called Antichrist. And so he's empowered by Satan in that sense, and he'll make war with them, overcome them, kill them. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. They of the people kindreds, tongues, nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, make merry, shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets that tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. And after three days and a half the spirit of life from God enters into them. They stood upon their feet. By the way, did you notice what happens with the verbs? Do you know what he just did with the verbs? What tense? Past tense. Why would he do that in prophecy? Because it's true. It's so true and it's so determined. It's going to happen. And he says, the three and a half days they stood upon their feet. Great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, come up hither. They ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. The same hour takes us to the very end of the tribulation with with that attack on Jerusalem. So what we've just highlighted, they were appointed by God to preach. What did we say when? What's the time period? Got it. You guys are good. Okay. Able to do miracles like? Okay. Okay. To have fire proceed out of their mouth, water turned to blood, plagues. Okay. So they're able to do a variety of different, different miracles and droughts, which was Old Testament plagues that were under different prophets. They'll be hated and attacked by who is the one in, that's primarily after them. Okay, the beast, Antichrist, but basically the entire world where he makes it very clear towards the end where he says, peoples of the tongues, the kindreds, the..." Tro-. he's making it a universal attack against them. A universal hatred against these guys, making it very clear. And they defend themselves by fire out of their mouths in that sense, which by the way, did God ever use fire to protect or defend his prophets? When? When? when in Egypt okay the fire was God's presence is there a case where fire was used to destroy people in protection of God's prophets okay Sodom and Gomorrah there was fire that destroyed the unsaved but in protection of a prophet there's two occasions in the Old Testament Okay, somebody said Moses do you remember when? Okay, not there. But Moses, Moses, it was being challenged by Korah and others. If you remember, when they were beginning the wilderness wanderings, and um, so Moses was called up in front. He didn't call the fire down, but God brought the fire down. If you remember, that Moses was there in front of the uh, the tabernacle, and God just said, basically, bring Korah and those people, and they were stepped before. Korah and the group who were against Moses wanted to get rid of him. Something happened to Korah and the handful with him. The earth opened up and swallowed them. But it says the others who followed them, fire came down and destroyed them. There's one other time where one of the prophets is being um, um, attacked. As they, the king is sending out groups of 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah. And remember what happens? Elijah's like sitting on a hill. And the first group of 50, demand the captain demands, you come down, da-da-da-da-da-da. And fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. They send a second group. I think, it's, I think I'm right, 50 or 100. Okay, or maybe it's 150. But the second group comes, and they're demanding, you better come down. What happens? Okay, there's another roast. Then the third captain comes with his group. What does he do different? Anybody remember? He asks. He says, please prophet, you know, we, we know that our colleagues, would you please come with us and spare our lives? We mean you no harm, but the king is demanding. And that's when he steps down and he goes with them. And so there's, this isn't a rare, okay, it's rare, I shouldn't say it that way, but it isn't a unique time where fire was used to defend God's prophets or to substantiate them in that mind, in that idea. So what happens to these two men? We already mentioned when they finish their, I think that's a, that's a critical phrase in this passage. When they finish their testimony, so God has a plan. God has a schedule. Does God know when their time is up? Does God know that about us? Yes, he does. Okay. So he has a plan that he's following. The beast that ascends, and we already mentioned this, that he appears at this moment to successfully destroy the prophets. It appear if you're living at that time, and you're writing a a blog, if you're putting out something about Antichrist. How would you present Antichrist? He- he- you said heroic? Why? What did he just do? He got rid of these two guys that are threatening the rest of us. Okay, These haters, these people who, and we pointed this out, they're going to say these guys have tormented us. And so... Um, they, they hate on these guys and he's going to get rid of them and this happens as we said the same hour all this you know, they're, they're recovering and everything is in that same hour of the end of the tribulation. Uh, where does it take place? We stopped right here last time. Jerusalem. You know that because it is the, the great city but it also clarifies very specifically the city where what else happened historically where Christ was crucified, but he calls the city two different names. Sodom, Gomorrah. Egypt. Why would he call them those names? If, if you from God's point of view, how, what is Sodom? W- wickedness? Is it, is it, a, is it a, one of the classic examples of wickedness? Okay, what about Egypt? Same thing, right? Right? Doesn't Egypt come up time and time again about you know, your, the gods of Egypt, things like that? And they're forever after the Jews. Historically, do the Jews have a good relationship with Egypt in Bible history? No, no. So he calls them that, which indicates to you, what about Jerusalem? E- Jerusalem, which is, from God's point of view, what is Jerusalem supposed to be? His city. His chosen city. He dwells on Mount Zion. Well, we know that's heaven, but also, from a human point of view, what city is called Mount Zion? Jerusalem. So it is God's chosen city, the city where God is to be the center of light. In fact, when the Jews pray, which way do they turn? They turn towards Jerusalem. Okay, So when they're doing this, like in Daniel... When Daniel was praying, he would turn towards Jerusalem because the temple, and th- even though the temple was gone, he's praying because that's the place. So, uh, the great city, we know that all of this is that whole idea that this city is really, really wicked at the time. That's because earlier he has said in the text that it has been turned over or it is trodden down by who? the Gentiles in chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. And so he's, uh, he's got this whole concept here of the city and it's so bad. So what's important is from the reader's point of view or the people living in that time period, it's almost as if God has been... Yeah. You know, from our point of view sometimes, from our, do we think that people are forgetting God? Do we think people are trying to get him out of our society? And do we ever think they're succeeding? Yeah, we do. Okay, and so if you're living in that time period and you're suffering persecution, there's the possibility that you're thinking, where's God? Where's God? And so these, then it gets even worse. The reaction of the world when these two prophets are killed by Antichrist, what does the world do? Okay, the world is going to celebrate. And again, it's telling us very clearly this isn't localized. This is universal of the people who are left. The general population of every kindred tongues, I mean, it's going to be dancing in the streets. Does anything historically, have there ever been events that the world has celebrated all at one time? Okay. Yes. Right, the the enemies of America. Yes? No? Okay. Has there ever been another other occasions in the world that something ended and people just celebrated? The world wars as well. Same type of thing. So the people are going to be celebrating and so this idea and I don't want you to catch something which is very important because those who are not literal interpreters of the Bible. Those who would try to give you ideas that this is just imagery. It is interesting the words that he chooses right here that are very, very clear in the original, that he wants to make sure that you understand this is literally happening. This isn't something figurative. So he uses a different word that he talks about when he says, their bodies. And he uses it three times in the text. Do I have that right? Where he makes the comment, um, their dead bodies, okay, in verse 9, their dead bodies, the word he uses Could be translated "corpse." He typically doesn't use this word about bodies in the New Testament, or when he's referring to somebody who's dead. So he's using it very clearly to catch our attention that these people really—it's not that they went into the hospital and into a coma for three and a half days. What does the using the word "corpse" very specifically? What's he want us to know? They're dead. They are physically dead. This is not a resuscitation in that sense of somebody who's just passed out. And so the author wants us to understand these guys are dead, dead, dead. Literally, physically. There's no doubt that they're dead. And it says the whole world's going to see this, which 100 years ago, people didn't understand this text. For you and I living in 2023, what do we say? This is every day. We see events worldwide. I mean, we can do what? We can even sit in church and pull them up on our phone. Okay, Not that you would, but I mean, we can. We have such access. So this passage is making more sense to you and me today than it did before. And so they refuse to remove the bodies, to get rid of them. Why would they do that? Why? I mean, they're celebrating. Okay, they're dead. Would, would, would we in our culture, would we want to leave a dead corpse around? Why would they do that? There's a difference in culture here, okay? There's a difference in culture. And it has happened in our lifetime. We have seen this happen. Yes, no? Okay? Remember when the troops went in? Uh, is it the. Uh, I, there's a couple of. Um, for instance, when they went in to rescue, I'm going way back. Um, the transition between Carter and Reagan, okay, and they try, and Carter had sent in to rescue the, rev- the hostages, and they crashed. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? It's it's not that ancient history, okay? It is, I guess. We we're back in the 70s, okay, and 80s. But remember what they did with the bodies of the American soldiers that that when the when the black helicopter crashed. They dragged him through the streets and then they even hung him upside down for a period of time. Why did they do that? Disrespect, defeat, disgrace. It is, it is in some places in the world, this is their way of showing absolute disdain for that individual. We read about that in history that some people who were killed... To really show, and I'm being morbid here, but to really show disdain for that individu- individual, they may cut up their bodies. They may abuse their bodies. They did this in the Middle Ages against believers, that they wanted to just absolutely, the, the authorities in England and Spain, different when they were under the inquisitions and persecutions, they would attack people who are already dead. You and I think they're dead why continue to beat up a dead body? But in those cultures, yeah, it, is, it is their idea. Well, that's what's going to happen here. So they're showing great disdain, great dishonor, and it consists for how many days does this go on? Three and a half. Three and a half. Not only are they showing disdain, but they are so hyped about this, what do they do? They give gifts to one another. I mean, this is this is Christmas. Okay, we're celebrating this thing. Now, just for your information, the Jews were forbidden to do this to their enemies. They were not to disdain, dishonor, disrespect bodies of, of their enemies. God made that clear that this isn't something to be done, even though it was very cultural in that part of the world. And so they're going to have this celebration, and they rejoice, and they carry on. This is the only time in the book of Revelation you find the word rejoicing relating to whatever's happening on earth. There's, there's rejoicing in the book of Revelation, but where is it portrayed? Always in heaven. This is the only time it's here on earth. They're making merry, sending the gifts, they're gloating over it, and we mentioned this last week, their comment is they tormented us. However, Who attacked who? Yeah. Do you remember? It was always when they used fire and different things, what were they doing? They were defending themselves. Okay. And so it wasn't a, you know, they weren't the initiators. But again, haters twist the truth. And so this happens that they do that and as a result, the torment, if there is a torment from the point of view of those who are killing them and celebrating their death, it's you tormented us with your miracles. You tormented us with your message. Do people think this way that they're being tormented when they're told the truth? Yeah, yeah, that happens. And so they just hate God so much. And they, they hate, so they hate God's messengers. And so they're, and, and they know, and remember what the world has already displayed. Does the world know the source of a lot of the judgments? Yes. What have they said in earlier judgments? Run into the rocks and the caves and hide us from the wrath of God. Okay. So they understand that. Even though they're going to say we don't believe in God, it's amazing how people do when they get into a crisis. And so what happens? They're doing that same thing. Now what happens? You already know. Spirit of life enters them. They stand upon their feet. Great fear falls upon those who see this happen. Their bodies, and there's no indication that these bodies that are, uh, that are um, left out, we have no indication that they're preserved in any way, shape, or form. And so ugly dead bodies all of a sudden come back to life and restored and a great voice says come up here and these two ascend up into heaven. Catch the next phrase. Okay? They ascend and who witnesses this? Their enemies beheld them. So multiple people behold. There are different thoughts that come from this text that I just want to throw out. There are those who say this is a text that proves the rapture is at the end of the tribulation. Because these two men represent Christians who God is going to defend and protect. And at the end, they're going to be attacked, go under persecution. And God will say, come up hither, which he said earlier in the book to John in verse 4. Come up hither. Come up hither and they're going to ascend up into heaven. So they aren't really two prophets who really live in that future time. They are symbols of the church which is going to be raptured at the end of the tribulation. How do you respond to that? Okay, okay. He's given specific details. He's given details like Jerusalem. How do all the believers get to Jerusalem around the world? He's given specific details like how many days? Three and a half days. Very specific. He's given a very specific detail about their bodies. What have we pointed out already? Okay, he uses an abnormal, an abnormal word usage that means corpses. And so he's very specific. So why did all of a sudden all that specific... This, yeah, you know the word. Okay, all that specific detail... We just throw out the window. Yeah, and he's given how many days they're supposed, uh, Once I think about it, the word gets stuck in my mouth. Yeah, uh, yeah, all those... Yeah, he's given how many days they prophesy. Do you remember? They were told uh, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,200. So all of these exact details, we just take a shovel and throw them out and say, oh, well, it was all symbolism. That just doesn't make sense to the common reader, does it? I mean, if he's giving that much detail, what does it indicate to you? A literal interpretation of the text says these are two real people and they die and all this happens. There is something else about what happens to them that it means they cannot be representing the church in a rapture. Something else given in detail here. Okay, so watch the, the idea here, the words, experience we just mentioned. The rapture happens so quickly, it is said to be happening in, a, in an atomus, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The word is atomus. How fast is an atomus? The twinkling, the twinkling you, you and I sometimes say, it's the blink. Actually, it's not. It is just a gleam that comes off the eye. How quick does a gleam? Okay, yeah, I mean, and yet what happens with these guys? The whole world is watching this and perceiving. For the whole world to see them go and to understand they're going, doesn't it indicate some form of gradual? It might be fast, faster than gradual, but it's observable, okay, where the rapture is clearly instantaneous. All of a sudden, it's going to be like you turned. It's not like you're turning and they're watching you go up from your pew and going up. It's going to be just, okay, yeah, Um, you know, it's not like all of a sudden, if I'm visiting a cemetery, let's, let's be gross about this, I'm visiting, and all of a sudden the graves or the bodies are coming out of the graves, and I have lots of time to figure out how to get saved. It's, it's not going to be that way, okay? And so it's all happening, and so the idea, this passage is not picturing the church being raptured. You're going to read that, and when you do some of your research, this is going to be promoted by those who don't believe in all of this... Um, literal interpretation of the book. And that's one of the more popular ideas that's coming out right now, is that this is indicative that we're going to go through, and we Christians are going to be protected by God through all the persecution. We won't suffer famine. We won't suffer any of those things. And while they're saying all this, I'm going, but in the very book you're talking about, it says what happens to the believers. They're going be, to be martyred. Right? Okay, and so it's, it's, it's this feel-good idea about the tribulation, which I don't understand. Okay, so what do we learn from just these two guys? Okay, let's just postulate a few things. If you're going to say, okay, from the example of the two prophets, what stands out? Any truths about God? He's what? How do you get he's not willing that any should perish? Okay. Even though the world is under judgment and they're experiencing judgment is god extending mercy okay what else do you learn about god anything else that stands out okay in the end he's going to be victorious anything else stands out take a phrase and when they had finished their testimony there's a timeline okay so we just pick a few things we know this, which is, by the way, very important for our Bible interpretation. This is critical. This distinguishes us from covenant theology, reformed theology. This is, this is the big key that, that differentiates um, Bible interpretation literally versus covenant and symbolism or reformed theology, which is becoming very popular in America. We believe, I hope you do, we believe that according to the Bible, the Israel and the church are distinct. They're two different entities, and God, the church has not replaced Israel. God is not done with Israel. He will fulfill the promises he made to them that he says, I'll give you the land. Okay, that's going to happen. I will recover. And so God is not done with Israel. He's working with them. God never leaves himself. There's what you had said. God's servants are invincible until they have completed their task. That includes you too. That in the sense that as God is working in and through you, His timetable that he has for your life is amazing. His work is really done by the Spirit, not by us. And again, this text, for these two great prophets, it is highlighted by verse 4, if we understand it right, that the work of God is by his might, not by our might. Do we need to remind ourselves every day of this? Absolutely. So even God's best servants are not immune from a difficult situation and personal sufferings. That is a truism. We go a little bit further. The world will hate upon God's servants because they hate God. That is true in your life. People will hate you because you represent God. No matter what happens to or is done to God's servants, they have, Bob, this brings what you had said. God will have the, and a tongue in cheek, God and us are going to have the last laugh. Okay, there's, it's going to turn out uh, in the good. God uses evil even for good. God works can, even in the darkest of days and the darkest of places. Remember, what has he just called Jerusalem? Sodom and Egypt. Is God still working in that dark, dark place? Yeah, can God work in your workplace? Yeah, absolutely. So then what happens is he says "And the same hour there's the great earthquake, one tenth of the city fell. It has to be Jerusalem because it's a great city already referred to in the beginning of the chapter. And so he says 7,000 die in the earthquake. There is a phrase, I don't fully understand this phrase, where he, what he uses. and And you can guess because I'm not sure what he meant. Where it says there's a number of people slain. How many? 7,000 dying in the earthquake and he says uh, the men that were slain. And when he says that, he, when he uses the word men, it's a translation from a, from a phrase, not Andres is usually men. Um, so he uses a phrase that the word means, which we have up here on it means named ones. There are. He's referring to a specific group of named ones. Are they are they some of his own people that have the name of God written on their head? Are they of these that die? Are they named ones in the sense that they are? Um, how do I want to phrase this? They are well known. They're public figures. They're part of Antichrist's government. They're part of those who, you know, if, if we were to pick the, in the, the people that we would say they are. they are people with authority power the cabinet of the president or some senate committee they're the named ones is that what he means? and he's saying that even those within Antichrist administration they're taken out I don't know I don't know but I just find it interesting that he uses this phrase uniquely in this spot the remnant are terrified they give glory to God if people become afraid and give glory to God what does that indicate in the book of Revelation? they're getting saved they're coming to a point where they're recognizing you know, I need Christ did the disciples ever get terrified in the presence of Christ you're all supposed to say a hearty amen Okay. do you remember I'm going to really be depressed do you remember any account where all of a sudden they were encountering Christ who they believed in but they got terrified oh thank you Somebody said, in the boat, okay. Did you hear a message lately on that? When? Last week. Okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, and so you have those situations. So it seems like now, what, if we're understanding everything right, we're at the last days of the tribulation. And then he makes this comment. He says, okay, the woe is past. Now we're into the seventh trumpet. And he takes us in the second half of the chapter where he says, and the seventh angel sounded and there was great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of the Lord. I I read it the way my translation has it. I'm going to read it again. I want you to watch there what they say and tell me if there's something different in your translation, if you have a different translation. Uh, they're going to da 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 da. Saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Does anybody have something different at all? What? Where? The kingdom of the. is become the. That's the way it is in the original. In the original, it doesn't say the kingdoms. It says the kingdom, which is a really strange historical thought, okay? But highlight, we're going to come back to that, okay? Because that's an important thought. The sounding of the trumpet takes place. And when this, the sounding of the trumpet, it says the four and 20 elders who are in heaven sitting before God in the seats fell on their faces and worshiped God. And they said, we give thanks, O Lord God, which art was and art to come because you have taken to yourself the great power and reigned, and has reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the dead of the time of the dead, that they should be judged. That you should um, give reward unto your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and then that fear your name, small and great, and destroy them which are polluters of the world, the anti-green movement. Okay. And the temple of, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there was lightning, the thunders, earthquake, and great hail. So let's run through this section. This is just, he's going to expand upon it, but again, he gives us just this detail, and then he's going to give us a whole lot more in the next chapters. The sounding of the trumpet initiates the final events to bring about the kingdom. Okay, so with that, where we've left chapter 6 is Jerusalem's under attack. To bring the kingdom, Jesus Christ has to do what? He's got to come back. So this isn't, hasn't said he's returned from heaven, but that's part of this. Okay, so we're right at that point where it's the details. And again, I remind you, not all the details about these final, this final trumpet, the final days of the tribulation. They've not been given. A lot of that was mystery. And so now we're going to get a lot of these details right here and then when he picks up with the trumpets uh, again in chapter 15. The text tells us that it is the final woe. The text tells us it's happening in the very last days of the tribulation, the seventh trumpet. It tells us that it says that this final trumpet shall sound the seventh trumpet. Then you have people who argue this. They say that according to the book of Corinthians, uh, at the last, uh, Corinthians 1 Thessalonians, at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise. 1 Thessalonians 4. And so they say, well, this is the last trump. This is the last trump. And this so this has to be when the rapture takes place. How does people like me, who are goofy, how is it we say at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise, which is going to be before the tribulation and then in the tribulation there's seven trumpets. Is there a contradiction in that? I say no, but does it, to somebody who's inexperienced with the word of God, does it look like a contradiction? Okay, how do we answer that? Well, obviously it's different trumpets, Yeah. Yeah. It could be a different, you're saying a different type of trumpet altogether. I think the key is it's a different application to who it applies to. Okay. Is the rapture trumpet the last one that we're, we're going to hear that affects us? The answer is yeah. But when it's a trumpet of judgment, you know, and by the way, the text has already said if we go back earlier. If we go to chapter 10 verse 7 he says in the days of the voice of the seventh angel that's that last trumpet when he shall begin to sound and the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared uh, did you catch the first part in the days plural so all these events with the last trumpet they take how long to occur days to occur how about the, the rapture Is it going to be days? We'll see you later. We'll see you later. I'm staying for another day or two. Okay. None of us want to stay another day or two. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's totally contradictory. The last trump refers to, in 1 Corinthians, the last one that's applicable to us. Okay. And so we go a little bit further. Uh, Let me go on with what It initiates the final judgments, including the seven bowl judgments are going to be in part of this. It leads to the coronation of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of Jesus. Further details are now going to be given in chapter 15. So he's just giving us a summary of everything that's going to be in those final days. Christ is going to come, take the world. Christ is going to judge. Christ is going to uh, reward, and he's going to uh, destroy. And we read in the book of uh, Daniel and elsewhere that that takes days. So it makes perfect sense that, that chapter 10, verse 7. And then he gives us background information that we're going to jump into. The Trump, there was great voices in heaven that occur, loud voices, angels, people, us, all these possibilities, the idea that we're expressing joy and celebration. Why would we in heaven be excited when the world is right on the verge of destruction? What would get us excited? Okay, okay. Christ is doing. What have we, what have we been told to pray for? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So has this been a prayer for ages? Lord, come quickly. Okay, the book of Revelation ends that way. Have you ever prayed, please? Yes? No? Okay. And so it's happening where Jesus is going to rule, Satan's going to be broken finally, rebellion will end, sin and death is going to be eliminated altogether. No wonder we're excited. We know what this is going to, yes, is a devastation for some people, but Ultimately, it's going to come. The kingdom of this world are become Christ's kingdom. That phrase, why did he use a singular? Hasn't there been historically multiple kingdoms? Yes or no? Okay. Let me just. Has there been prophecy given in the past about major kingdoms? Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a second Rome. In the book of Daniel, there's been multiple kingdoms and we know historically there's been others. So why does he now very distinctly say the kingdom of this world has become Christ's kingdom? Okay. 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 Let's look at it from God's point of view. Okay. Even though there's been multiple kingdoms, has there been a common thread through them? yes no what's been the common thread through earthly kingdoms I mean Israel survived but what the, the, the normal kingdoms what has been their common thread in the sense of how do they view God ok let's, let's go all the way back to the very first unity of all the people as a singular kingdom when was the first singular kingdom that they got together and built something ok what was their goal to reach heaven, to basically exalt themselves. Has that pattern of self-exaltation been a common characteristic? Have kingdoms, have governments, even though God uses them and puts people in authority and maneuvers things, has there been a history of self-promotion? Okay, humankind elevation. Okay, and we know that God has set Israel different, but with this okay, I think this is this is the- the reason he does this. The world's kingdoms are basically one in nature. there's been this common thread, all of them have been influenced by Satan. Can we prove in the according to the Bible that Satan has a hand in politics i I said going to the Bible, not going to you know <laughs> just watching what's happening. According to Bible, does Satan have a hand in politics? Has there been are there any verses that say Satan's in charge of what's going on? To a degree Satan is in charge. Do you know of any phrases that give that that idea? Okay. In the temptation, Lloyd is bring up, in the temptation he said, if you would bow down to me, I will give you. How does he claim to have that authority? Because he, he has it to a degree. Are there other passages that indicate he is the powerful, I know God is ultimate, but that Satan does have a real role and power in our world. What's that? He's referred to as the God of this world once, twice, multiple times. Okay, let's just do that for a second. Okay, let's think this through. Even though God has ordained rulers and God is superintending and God's back, does he let Satan have some free freedom in working? The answer is yes. Okay, you give him enough rope to do what? Okay, so what has happened? Here's the different passages that are very interesting. That he talks, he's the prince of the air. Now, I understand that there are groups around us who live in the nearby that say that means he's the prince of TV, radio, everything that goes through the air, internet, that Al Gore made. Therefore, all these devices are evil. Is that what he meant by the prince of the air? You know, that he's the prince of everything that, I, I don't think it's that specific, but it's the idea, does he have influence in the world? Okay, He's called the God of this world. He's called the ruler. That's the one I was thinking of multiple times. Jesus called him the ruler of this world on three different occasions. He's the one that, um, that in the temptation that you brought up he's, he, has, he has the wherewithal to say to Jesus I'll, I'll acquiesce everything right now. I'll stop doing what I'm doing I'll let you have it but you have to bow down to me. He also is, Jesus, remember when Jesus is saying that idea where he says a house divided cannot stand? He makes that allusion. He says, how shall Satan, in the context of the thing, uh, the paragraph, how shall Satan's kingdom stand? Jesus um, uh, endorses this idea, this concept, that Satan is a powerful force right now. That he is, has been given some realm of authority even here on this earth. Which you think, now, now Now, bring it to its logical conclusion starting with the spiritual concept. This present world is under a lot of demonic influence. Doesn't that explain the craziness of our society? That people are just... Satan's a powerful force. We underestimate that. Probably the people that should be the most aware are us. And we stop and, and fall short of the idea that Satan is a manipulator and he is against us. And so this is, this is a powerful passage. And so no wonder God is saying, I'm going to give them over to the reprobate minds when people claim to be so intelligent. He's just saying, you're following. And by the way, According to Ephesians 2, who at one time was following the God of this world? Us. He reminds us that in times past, our minds were alienated from God, and we were following the God of this world and the God of this present age. And so he challenges us, hey, not to be haughty and boastful, but to understand we have an enemy and those people who are ensnared by him, that was us one day that we were there. So let me pick up next week, okay, uh, where, where we stop right here. Then we're going to get into the visions of, the, of Antichrist and things of that sort. Thank you so much for your input.